1: iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity Voice Remote.
2: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, deputy opinion editor, and I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're gonna bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
3: On this episode of Newt's World, in the United States, a highly organized intelligence system really did not exist before World War II. Our geographic isolation, coupled with Puritan inherited notions that we were above such behavior, meant spying on our enemies, or our allies, was a relatively rare, often haphazard, undertaking. But as Nicholas Reynolds details in his new book, Need to Know, World War II and the Rise of American Intelligence, that national restraint gave way during the war to an extraordinary intricate network of spying which, post-war, would grow into our modern intelligence system. Here to talk about his new book, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Nicholas Reynolds. He is the New York Times best-selling author of Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy, and has worked in the fields of modern intelligence and military history for 40 years. He has a PhD from Oxford University and joined the United States Marine Corps in the 1970s, serving as an infantry officer and then as a historian. Nick, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World.
4: Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Pleasure to be here.
3: I just want to start with an interesting story that I just read of more than a dozen World War II ships being revealed in the water after a drought on the Danube River caused the lowest water levels of the past century. The German ships exposed in the Danube, Europe's second longest river, had been part of Nazi Germany's Black Sea Fleet. They were sunk by the retreating German Navy In 1944, to prevent them from falling into the hands of the advancing Soviet army. As I understand it, your mother's actually from Hungary.
4: That's correct.
3: So she may well have lived along the Danube.
4: She lived in Budapest. So she was there in December 1944 and January, and maybe a little part of February 1945. Basically, she was living in a bunker for self protection while the fighting went along. I think this is an intriguing development. It's sort of like history being uncovered, and we could take it as a metaphor for World War II history. I like World War II for a lot of reasons. One is that my family was involved in it, but another is that I think most of the documentation from World War II is available, and historians like me are able to use it to write books.
3: You're kind of a little bit appropriately designed to be a military historian. Now, as I understand it, you got your PhD from Oxford University, and then you joined the U.S. Marine Corps in the 1970s. Why did you decide to join the Marine Corps? Well,
4: I'm just a little too young for Vietnam, but I was right on the cusp there. I felt, you know, it was something that I guess I feel if we're going to impose national service on some people, we ought to impose it on everybody. And then there was also curiosity about what it's like to be in the military. For my generation, most people we knew had been in the military at some point for a year or two. It was an experience, maybe it wasn't a positive experience the whole time, but it was an experience that everyone shared. And my parents' generation, talk about World War II again, just so many people went, and if you didn't go... Then you worked in a munitions factory, you worked for an aircraft factory, whatever. So I guess it's sort of a World War II mindset that drove me to join the Marine Corps.
3: Did you run into any other PhDs who had joined?
4: (laughs) That's a great question. So I was in the infantry, and you know, there are a lot of smart guys there and guys smarter than me. And I've got to say, very rarely did anybody go, Oh, I don't want to talk to him. He's got a PhD. Mostly it was We're brother officers, fellow Marines, and whoever we were before, we're now Marines, and that's what matters.
3: I was going to mention, I mean, you didn't just join the military. You joined the Marine Corps, which is the most distinctive of the services.
4: That's what we would say. I still say that.
3: Oh, listen, my dad spent 27 years in the infantry. I'm an Army brat, but having hung out with all the major services, the Marines clearly are much more formative I always tell people, you served in the Army. You are a Marine. You can't get out of it.
4: That's what we say, and it's probably no accident that the first interview I did for this book was down in Quantico for the Marine Corps Association.
3: You became the officer in charge of field history, sending historians around the world to capture combat as it was happening, which is something which SLA Marshall had pioneered in World War II. How did you find that experience of trying to understand the confusion and complexity of battle in virtually real time?
4: Boy, what a great question. What we normally did was conduct oral history interviews, and that's how we captured it. But at the same time, we asked the field historians to keep a journal in which they recorded their impressions of what was going on. So maybe that pattern doesn't come clear until much later, because you're only experiencing this small slice of it. Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003, I was attached to a senior headquarters, so I had a little better chance of seeing that General McKiernan is trying to do this and General Franks is saying that. And I had a bigger picture, and then we could refine that picture later on. I think it was a fascinating and rewarding way to be a historian and has the added benefit of the participants have a chance to record their experiences while the memories are still fresh. And on more than one occasion, we have people come up to us and thank us for giving them that opportunity. So we felt we were doing a social good in addition to preserving a military
3: history. From there, you then taught history and case studies and intelligence at the Naval War College, which is a very famous institution which once housed Alfred Thayer Mahan. It did probably the most influential naval theorist in history. What was it like to come out of the field and now be in a classroom thinking through what you've learned?
4: That was in 2004. You're right. I came from Iraq and Kuwait and went to the Naval War College. There were a lot of other people, officers, students, and faculty who had been to the war, so we were all kind of digesting it together. The amazing thing about military history is everyone doesn't come to the same conclusion. I mean, some people say it was this kind of fight and this is the weapon system that worked best. Other people say, no, absolutely not. It was the other weapon system or the other decision should have been made. But it was fascinating to try and boil down what we had experienced and to come to some kind of consensus about what had happened.
3: I'm curious. I've never had a chance to ask this to anybody. Have you ever looked at the effort to understand combat history in the Civil War? Because as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, you know, they're taking a very tiny military on both sides and radical changes in combat capability and adapting in a four-year period to an astonishing degree. I'm curious how much that was self-aware and how much of it was just doing whatever worked.
4: I have looked at Civil War history, and as the war goes on, how does an army learn how to fight? You know, does the general consciously say, I'm going to try this kind of tactic, or does he wake up one morning and just do it? I do have a theory, and that is on the tactical level, on the eight or ten guys around you, it's probably more reflexive. You don't think about what you're doing. You just go and do it. I think a lot of people who are successful in combat are also gifted athletes, So there's the quick muscle memory, there's the quick reflexes, there's also a kind of charisma that propels you and your comrades in arms towards the front. At the higher levels, that becomes so complicated fast. These days, you become a soldier or a Marine, and you do that all day for 20 years, right? You go to school, you go to exercises and whatnot. What was the pattern in the Civil War? Yeah. Grant went and ran a grocery store for a while, you know, after he graduated from West Point and the Civil War. He wasn't going to professional schools. He did go to the Mexican-American War. So there was a little bit of learning there. But how do these guys learn? After the war, you do have some people who are trying to sit down and go, so what worked and what didn't work? But during the war itself, boy, I don't know.
3: You clearly have you know, Jackson's ability in the Valley at the very beginning of the war, he clearly inspires his troops in a way that makes them stunningly effective. The Army of the West under both Grant and Sherman is very, very fast, whereas McClellan, who's an engineer, creates a very slow, cumbersome, engineer-like army. It's just an interesting question.
4: That's the training at West Point. They're trained to be engineers.
3: Right. They weren't actually trained into warfighting in that cycle. They wanted the engineers to go out and build America, which they had been doing. So to get back to your history, you ultimately go to work for the CIA. How did you become a CIA archivist and historian?
4: I'm a CIA generalist first uh, in my day, which would be the 80s and 90s. Now, if you want to join CIA, you go to the website and you look up the career track you want and you press a button. In my days, I want to give you a phone number and say, call Bob. Long story short, I wound up as a generalist and I was in the director of operations. And so I was involved at home and abroad with espionage. And then at the end of my career, I had another great niche job, which is historian for the CIA Museum. And I did that for about five years. And that was a terrific job because it's a small museum with a tiny staff. And that means you get to do everything. So you're not confined to writing the labels for an exhibit, but you can do strategic planning, you take tours, you go out and visit other museums, you benchmark, you write monographs, you write exhibit guides. And that led into my World War II work, or better said, I looped back into World War II from my work at the CIA Museum.
3: You said at one point, it's the best museum you ever saw, and that the rest of us won't be there.
4: I happen to have their promotional, and it says the best museum you never saw. And it's on the premises at CIA headquarters. I think it's a neat little museum, of course I'm biased. And it's primarily a museum for the employees. The NSA museum is outside defense. So that's more for the general public. The CIA museum, the intended audience is mostly the workforce.
5: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. It's time
0: for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. At LuckyLandSlots.com, available to players in the U.S. excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called
3: Impromptu.
2: Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
3: Hi, this is Newt. We have serious decisions to make about the future of our country. Americans must confront big government socialism, which has taken over the modern Democratic Party, big business, news media, entertainment, and academia. My new best-selling book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, offers strategies and insights for everyday citizens to save America's future and ensure it remains the greatest nation on earth. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order an autographed copy of my new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, right now at Gingrich360.com book, and we'll ship it directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. It's only available for a limited time. Go to gingrich com slash book to order your copy now. Order it today at gingrich 60com slash book. What drew you to deciding to study and write about World War II?
4: So something that's been in my blood, as I say, it's what I grew up with. It wasn't dinner table conversation every day. But it was, you know, every so often. And you saw little bits of World War II. So I mentioned that my mother was in the siege of Budapest. And so after dinner, she would very carefully preserve the leftovers. And her brother had been a soldier, and he'd been captured. And when he ate, he surrounded his plate with his arm to protect his food. So it was part of our lives is what I'm saying. I've always loved to read. And so I start reading and then I start meeting people. I wound up, my dad was in the Foreign Service after World War II. We were stationed in Germany. And what better place to study World War II than Germany, which, so this would be late 60s, early 70s, where people are still walking the streets who were in the fight, in the war. And then Generally willing to talk about it. So I did a little bit of archival research and then kind of fast forward. I have a friend named David Kahn, who's the author of a groundbreaking work called Codebreakers. He wrote the history of codebreaking when it wasn't cool to do so in the 60s and 70s, when people didn't know what you could or couldn't say. And he told me one day, he says, you know, nobody's ever written a history of American intelligence in World War II that looks at more than one discipline. So that's what drove me to write this book, to try and look at the various disciplines and how they grew up during the war and what their relationship was to each other.
3: When you talk about disciplines, can you walk us through what do you mean by disciplines? Sure.
4: A really distinct discipline is cryptology, code making, and then code breaking, People who tend to be mathematicians, not exclusively mathematicians, linguists, and have something that one of the great codebreakers called cipher brains. They just have the knack. They have the magic that enables them to do it. So that's a very distinct discipline in the world of intelligence. Other disciplines you get progressively, they're not as hard and distinct. There's photo reconnaissance, which is huge in World War II. And then there's various kinds of radio intelligence, where you're trying to figure out where the enemy is by traffic analysis and that sort of thing, as opposed to breaking his codes. And then you get on to special operations, you get research and analysis, you get secret intelligence, where you're trying to recruit spies and steal secrets. It's a village of skills. My point in the book is, at the beginning of the war, the people in this village live in different huts and they don't necessarily get along or even talk to each other. In some cases, they're not even aware who lives in the other hut, let alone knowing what he's doing in that hut. And there are, by the way, a few women involved in this. So I say, guys, it is overwhelmingly male at the beginning of the war. By the middle or end of the war, you find, especially in code breaking, you find up to one-third, one-half of the workforce is female. So this is a culture shift as women come out of the home and go into the war effort.
3: Well, in terms of code breaking, in some ways, the most famous single example was the guys in the basement who figured out that the Japanese were going to Midway, which is sort of astonishing. So
4: I have a chapter on him, Joe Rochefort and his gang. And they're an unusual bunch, completely dedicated. So this is before you get modern air handlers, right? So you're basically in a basement with a couple of fans, and everybody smokes cigarettes or pipes or cigars. And so the air is foul, the light is poor, and yet they produce. They're an unusual mix of code breakers, of traffic analysis, of trying to figure out, well, uh, you know, you had five messages from here yesterday and 10 messages from there. Does that suggest anything? As well as sort of area knowledge who the Japanese officers were, what they were likely to do. Admiral Yamamoto, by the way, as you may know, had been naval attaché in Washington. So a lot of these guys knew Admiral Yamamoto. He liked to play poker. He liked to drink bourbon. You put it all together, they they could intuit where he might go and what he might do. And they were right. So it was a near-run thing, as there was no no point before the battle at which you could feel really good at that it would go our way. And even after, there's a little part of my book that I like. So the carrier strikes against the Japanese, the U.S. aircraft carrier pilots successfully attack and hit the four Japanese carriers. But they can't fly around the carrier and wait for it to sink, right? It takes a long time for an aircraft carrier to sink. So these guys got to fly back to land and refuel and whatnot and they leave these carriers burning on the horizon. Well, there's no radio intelligence guys can't tell for sure what's happened. And there is one guy who does know, and it's the sole survivor of the torpedo squadron that flew in low and got shot down. And he is bobbing in the water while the Japanese fleet is sailing past. And then 36 hours later, he's picked up I mean, it's really almost by chance that a patrol plane passes and sees him and comes down. And he says, yeah, I saw them sink. I saw three carriers sink with my very own eyes. And that's when they had the absolute confirmation that the hits had led to. I like these personal stories in World War II. And at the beginning of the war, it seemed to be more personal stories. The end of the war, there's, there's more industry.
3: The survivor actually was a constituent of mine and used to come by and talk about that. Ensign Gay, right? George Gay. Yeah, Ensign Gay. It's astonishing people don't realize that the torpedo planes actually didn't do any damage, but they drew all the Japanese fighters down, which created the space for the dive bombers who then sank the carriers. It's one of the most amazing stories. But now, while that's sort of the great intelligence breakthrough in the Pacific, in the Atlantic, the ability to decipher the Enigma system and the building of the bomb, which was the name for the first really big computer, generated constant waves of information in a way that I don't think Nimitz ever had the advantage of. I mean, we actually know an amazing amount about what the Germans are doing strategically, not necessarily tactically, but just be able to track both in the sea and air and land, what they're up to. To what degree is that a dominant factor in looking at intelligence in World War Two?
4: Well, I give it at least a chapter in the book. So I think it's an important part of the picture for a couple of reasons. One is the partnership with the British, which is sort of like dating. At the beginning they're kind of like two groups that have been sent on blind dates and then they sort of carefully maneuver around each other and get to know each other. So the Atlantic, the war against the U-boats is a big part of how this code-breaking alliance, Anglo-American code-breaking alliance gets going. The other part is we sink the submarines. The Allies sink the submarines. It's a remarkable combination of code-breaking, yes, getting the message and breaking it out and seeing that the U-boat is being ordered to a certain position in the water. But it's reinforced by other things such as radio direction finding. So there's 30 or 40 sites on the perimeter of the North and South Atlantic. And so a German submarine that broadcasts even for 30 seconds is picked up on one or two or three of these And so there are lines back to its position. So these guys, it's a really clear cut intelligence triumph. It's that in the intelligence business, you often don't have like, okay, we had this input and we had that result. In this case, you could say without intelligence, you're not gonna be there. Intelligence didn't sink the ships or the submarines, but it created the conditions that led to their sinking. And the other is the amazing tenacity and aggressiveness of these young American naval aviators who are flying out over the water. A lot of the patrolling is just deadly dull. I mean, mile after mile of empty ocean, and then you see a German submarine, and then you go and attack, and nobody's watching you, right? There's nobody else there. There's not like a formation that, hey, we're all gonna fly down. So these guys are self-motivated, and they do a terrific job, and they don't quit until they get it done.
5: Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
2: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time.
3: was that before the war, FDR, President Roosevelt, really didn't have any great interest in developing a professional intelligence service. It really emerges very slowly. You could say that. He is not
4: a manager or leader of intelligence, especially compared to his colleague across the water, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill has the knowledge and the six cents to run british intelligence at a high level fdr he used to say he was the juggler and he had one set of balls in one hand and another set of balls in the other hand and he never mixed the balls together and that was kind of his approach to intelligence so he had a little he had a group here that did something and a group there that did something fdr would task somebody to do something outside an organization so he did that a lot with the state department he would send somebody as his personal emissary, and he'd say, please communicate with me, not with the State Department. And that was kind of his approach to intelligence. My sense is you're a lot better off when you have the organizations working together and developing protocols that work for the organization, as we see in the submarines that we mentioned a couple minutes ago.
3: And yet in the middle of all that, in typically Rooseveltian fashion, he reaches out to a New York political acquaintance, and lawyer who had been, I think, a World War I Medal of Honor winner, William J. Donovan, who then creates the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, and is considered the founding father of the CIA. I'm very curious, what's your take on Donovan, who's just sort of an amazing guy? He is,
4: and he's got like a senior aide named Rogers. He's a mountain climber. He's a lawyer. He's been a Professor, he's been head of a college at Yale and he's like the national security advisor within OSS. He's like the first door outside Donovan's office. And he says, you know, Donovan is such a wonderful guy. He's got all these ideas. He's got all this charisma and charm, but he's also one of the most disorganized people you ever saw. And he's going in 10 directions at once. And Rogers uses the term Mustang plunges. He says it's like trying to harness a Mustang to a carriage, and the Mustang is just fighting the whole time. So he has mixed feelings about Donovan. The long and the short of it is Donovan gives us the idea of central intelligence, and that you have an organization that under one umbrella has a number of disciplines. So that's his lasting contribution, I think.
3: It's almost like a novel. You have these large, traditional, professional bureaucracies. And then you have this wild man show up, and he recruits other wild men. Late in his career, I knew Bill Casey, who had been a Jedberg and had been dropped into France to fight the Nazis. And Casey clearly was sort of a miniature version of Donovan.
4: Yeah, that was the picture that Casey had on his desk for his whole life, was Donovan. Definitely a role model and Casey was an amazing learner in World War II. His specialty is business law, right? So it's how he runs a firm that whose purpose is to tell businessmen how to navigate the regulations of the New Deal. And it's very successful. There's nothing here that says intel, right? There's nothing here that says he's going to be good, except that he's orderly and absorbs facts really fast. And so he winds up in, I believe he doesn't join up till like 43. And so, in the space of like a year or a year and a half, he learns enough about this business. He basically runs the operations to put paramilitary OSS types behind German lines in Germany, which the British didn't want to do. So, he's actually having people in the winter of 44, 45. They're parachuting, many cases, with no preparations on the ground. Like there's not a group waiting with a bottle of wine and a loaf of bread like in France. And they're pretty successful. Now, does it change the outcome of the war? No, but it's pretty impressive, speaking of Casey here, that he learned so fast. He was totally dedicated to his work. In some ways, he was the manager that Donovan should have been. And one of the early tasks that he had was to sort out the paper flow in Donovan's office. And he did. And then they said, okay, we think David Bruce in London, we think his office could use a little tune-up too. So this young man shows up and he's telling David Bruce, who's already kind of a big guy, that he's there to organize his office. And Bruce says, yeah, sure you are. Have a seat over there and I'll call you when I need you. He does make a niche for himself doing these operations.
3: Quite a story. But that was typical of Donovan. I mean, Donovan would recruit talent from all over the place.
4: Absolutely. Donovan found great talent. Donovan was no spring chicken, right? So he's 57 when the war starts. This war is a young man's business. The guys flying the missions, they're in their 20s. Donovan had all this energy and accomplished as much as he did, is a credit to him. And in retrospect, we wish he had been more organized. We wish he'd followed orders a little better. He was a little bit like Roosevelt in that he was Mr. Workaround. Instead of coming up with a procedure to do it, he would figure out how to go around the procedure and talk to somebody who would let him do what he wanted.
3: Well, and of course, the process would drive the traditional bureaucracies crazy.
4: Yes, absolutely. A good example is J. Edgar Hoover, who was a very orderly man. And the two clashed increasingly as the war went on. They were sort of frenemies, doesn't quite get it at the beginning of the war. They were rivals who were civil to each other at the beginning of the war. By the end of the war, it was like, "Mm, I'm not dealing with that blankety blank.
3: So all of this comes to sort of a crisis point as the war ends and the bureaucracies win. And on September 20th, 1945, Truman signs the executive order, which ends the OSS. The State Department gets the research and analysis branch The War Department takes over the secret intelligence and counterespionage branch and created a new strategic services unit. And for the moment, it looked like we weren't moving towards a central intelligence capability. And yet, all of that knowledge had come forward. And how did it then lead to, ultimately, the Central Intelligence Agency? Because the fact is, within months of having abolished the OSS, Truman turns around and creates the Central Intelligence Group.
4: Right there was a group called the Bureau of the Budget, which was sort of like a OMB. It was kind of like the management company for the executive branch. And that was the guy that the president would look to, to say, I want to establish an organization to do this, show me how to do it. Or now that the war is over, we need to do that. What do we have to do? Truman, he's not been briefed on anything when he becomes president. He hasn't been briefed on the atomic bomb. He hasn't been briefed on code breaking. And he's not a member of the Eastern elite. You know, the guys who have been running the country. And so he's got this tremendous learning curve. And so he relies pretty heavily on the Bureau of the Budget guys who want to see OSS gone for various reasons. Donovan was too wild, undisciplined. A lot of the members of OSS were uniformed soldiers, a few sailors and Marines. And their time's up. They had to go back to their parent organization and be demobilized. So there was going to be some shrinkage. And so they abolish OSS and keep its parts. But Truman says, we don't want to lose all the capabilities. Let's try and find a way to organize this. Late 1945, the government, the Washington establishment is just thrashing around wildly trying to figure this out. And it doesn't help that there are really strong personalities at play. My theory is that the war being over, the Japanese and the Germans are not there to focus everyone's attention so they can fight each other more bitterly. You know, and there's some real characters. There's Secretary Forrestal, who used to be a boxer. I mean, he's not an easygoing guy, and he's one of the more reasonable guys. Jimmy Burns from South Carolina, the Secretary of State, whose nickname in Washington was the assistant president. And he thought he should have been FDR's running mate. So, I mean, these guys just butt heads mercilessly. Kind of by the end of 1945, everyone's exhausted and they come up with a compromised solution that doesn't work and is refined until in 1947 you get a CIA by legislation. The bottom line here I think is that this is part of Truman's learning curve and that he did want a strong enough intelligence organization and eventually he got there. Something that I don't think FDR would ever have done. I think FDR would have tried to keep juggling the balls I think Truman deserves credit for wanting to be disciplined and organized and trying to get these things into one box.
3: Nick, I want to thank you for joining me. I want to let our listeners know that we're going to have a link to your new book, Need to Know, World War II and the Rise of American Intelligence, on our show page at newsworld.com. And I look forward to you having another New York Times bestseller on your hands.
4: Thank you, Mr. Speaker.
3: Thank you to my guest, Nicholas Reynolds. You can get a link to buy his new book, Need to Know, World War II and the Rise of American Intelligence, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.